We're all hooked up. <clears throat> okay, two things are on the schedule for this Saturday morning. We want to make sure the men know we're going to have men's prayer breakfast as usual at 7.30 in the morning, followed by the deacons meeting. And then at 2 o'clock, we'll have the memorial service uh, for Dor- Dorothy Hanish. So <clears throat> in terms of the men's prayer breakfast, you know, invite some of the other men that you know in the church that uh, uh, to come and be here for the for the meeting. And then we also need to send an announcement out on that to remind everybody. And then on February 9th, our annual congregational meeting will be held following the uh, morning worship service. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that if you have uh, any uh, unconfessed sins, you can make sure that you confess sin and that you can be restored to our fellowship with God, that we can be walking by the Spirit and that God the Holy Spirit will be active in our learning and processing and assimilating uh, the Word this evening and that we can be responsive to his teaching. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can each make sure we're uh, ready to study the word and ready to focus on our spiritual life, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have this time to focus upon your word. Scripture says that your word has been breathed out by you and is profitable for teaching, for instruction in righteousness, for reproof, for correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, that every believer can be thoroughly equipped, prepared, outfitted for our ministry, our service to you, our spiritual life. Father, we pray that tonight as we study, we'll have an opportunity to think through what your word teaches, the examples that are given here, and that God the Holy Spirit would use it to challenge each one of us in terms of our own spiritual life and spiritual walk. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 13. 2 Samuel 13, and we're getting into a section here that is a, <clears throat> I consider it one of the darker sections of Scripture, and it is the, this whole period that deals with the sins that develop in David's family, uh, starting with the sin of Amnon in chapter uh, chapter 13 and extending through the conspiracy, the rebellion of Absalom uh, <clears throat> and his rebellion against against David through the next several chapters. And so what I'm starting off with is sort of an introduction to understand the background of this text. Scripture teaches, as I mentioned in prayer in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all Scripture is breathed out by God, that there's no Scripture that hasn't been 
equally inspired. So when you have a red letter edition, that's nice if you want to look up the words of Jesus, but guess what? They're all the words of Jesus. So it's not just those red red letters. It's all breathed out by God. It's the th- mind of Christ according to 2 Corinthians chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 16. And that tells us that we can understand God's thinking. It's been revealed to us. But when the Scripture is all breathed out by God, it's then profitable. It has a benefit to us. It is for our edification in four areas. The first is it teaches us. There's instruction. So when we come to Genesis 5 and you read all of the begats and all of the so-and-so fathered so-and-so, that is given for our spiritual instruction. A lot of people sit back and go, why? Well, when you co- same thing happens when you come to Second uh, Samuel 13 through about 20 or 21. It's why has God given this to us? What is so significant about this? Especially when you look at other episodes in Scripture that we might think uh, had a greater import, a greater significance. You go into the Gospels and some of the things uh, that Jesus teaches, some of the things that conversations that he has with some of his disciples, and those seem quite important, and yet you have three or four verses. And as I was thinking through chapter 13, you have uh, 21 verses in the first part, 22 verses, where God is going into all this detail about Amnon's uh, sexual lust for his half-sister and his incestuous rape of his half-sister and all of the dynamics related to that. And then that bleeds over, when that's over with, into the vengeance of Absalom who eventually murders Amnon. And so we have to stop and we have to think a little bit about why does God want us to know this? What is he teaching us in this section? And there are a number of different things that we could focus on, but the one that is most obvious is just the dynamics of the sin nature that plays through this whole section. The rebelliousness of David's uh, children is a picture of our rebellion against God. And we see these these um, uh, the consequences played out in David's David's children. I've entitled this lesson, if I can get that slide up there. Don't feed the beast. Now you'll understand why I call it "Don't feed the beast" later on. But that is <clears throat> something we should all come to understand. Because there's so many people who don't really trust the Bible. They don't trust God. They feel so enmeshed in whatever bothers them, whatever the sins are that so easily beset them, uh, whatever their struggles are, they just think, I can never lick this thing. God doesn't seem to help at all. And so what we see in this passage is uh, relates to understanding those dynamics, and we're going to tie it together by looking at a, in this introduction, by looking at a framework for understanding these, these operations of the sin nature and what that's all about. And so we're starting off right away to focus on the sin nature and lust. What does the Bible teach us 
about the sin nature and lust. And let me just give a little word of sort of caution and warning at the beginning. If you've never noticed this, and probably haven't, theologians get all wrapped around the axle about the word nature. And and the word nature basically means our propensity to sin, our the corruption that is part of our nature, part of our fallen nature. It's not genuine human nature because that's been corrupted. God created Adam and Eve in his likeness, and they were perfect, and they were both equally in the image of God. But that image wasn't destroyed by sin, but it was corrupted by sin. And we have to start in our understanding of our, our ourselves, our own self-awareness, is that we have this enemy within us. Theologians have said for years that we have three enemies. Two are external. That is the devil, who goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we have the world system which reflects the arrogant thinking of Satan, his desire to be independent of God or his autonomy and his antagonism to God. That's the very essence of Satan's thinking. He, he wants autonomy, wants to, be, uh, wants to be independent of God. He doesn't want God telling him what to do. And he wants, and he's in uh, antagonism. He hates God. He despises God, but he, the very uh, angels don't breathe, but if they did, the very breath that he breathed, the very fact that he's alive from second to second is due to the grace of God. And God allows him to live for various uh, reasons and purposes. And one of those is because he is involved in the testing of human beings and tempting, uh, enticing our sin natures. Now, that doesn't mean that if he's enticing our sin natures, that if we sin, that we can then pass, <clears throat> excuse me, pass the buck and say, the devil made me do it. You know, we have a great example right now looking at what's going on not only in the, um, in the mindless uh, media of our day as well as the propaganda in Iran that wants to blame President Trump for everything. And they want to blame him, especially for this Ukrainian airline jet that was shot down in Iran last week. Because if he weren't so hostile and if he weren't so antagonistic, if he would just get along with everybody, then everything would be wonderful and this never would have happened. And that's just garbage. That is doing exactly what Adam did in the garden. He said, God, if you hadn't created that woman, if you hadn't given her to me, I wouldn't have sinned. It's all your fault. That's exactly what they're doing. They're passing the buck and they're saying, if, if Donald Trump hadn't been elected, if Donald Trump weren't breathing the same air we were, then that airliner wouldn't have gone down. That airliner went down because Adam sinned in the garden. So let's take it to its logical conclusion. Let's just blame Adam for everything. But this is absurd, but that's how the fallen, corrupt mind works because it's completely divorced and separated from, from reality. So we need to understand that what makes the world go round isn't money and it isn't love. It's sin. And every one of us is fallen sinners. 
And we all try to disguise that in various ways, those of us who are believers, but those who are out there. If you get really get out there and rub shoulders with most people in the world, they, they don't have any sense of morality. They have no sense of shame. They have no sense of right and wrong. They are doing some of the most bizarre things and validating them. And you can just go walk the streets of some of the streets of Houston and some of the streets in San Francisco or Los Angeles or any other big city, and you get to know what the people are doing. And it's just profoundly evil. But that same evil is resonant in every single one of us. And uh, we can just thank God that it, because of his grace that we're not like that. We have been, we've understood the gospel and God has enlightened our minds to the truth. But we have to deal with this, this sin nature. So let me take us through this diagram again because it is so helpful and it is so instructive that we have a diamond. Now, that doesn't mean there's something that looks like this inside of you. Some people get that idea. This is just a way to chart out or to graphically represent all the different facets that come out of our sin nature. And that sin nature is in every cell structure. It's embedded in human DNA because of Adam's sin in the garden. It was passed on. We're under the uh, penalty of spiritual death. We're alienated from the life of God as we've studied in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4. That's the idea of spiritual death. And therefore, we're cut off from life. We, we're cut off from truth. We love, John, the writer of the Gospel of John says it this way, men love darkness rather than light. We're attracted it's more than attraction. We we want to wallow in darkness. We want to wallow in sin because in the in the way the sin nature reverses our perception of reality, we think it that's going to make us happy. That that the path that the sin nature orients us to, and each one of us is going to be different. The path that the sin nature orients us to is going to give us happiness, and it's self destructive. It is the path of death. It's not the path of life. So the sin nature, at its very core, we have lust patterns. And those lust patterns are the driving motivation of the sin nature. That's what moves us in one direction or another. And there's basically two directions that people go. And they either go towards licentiousness or they go towards legalism. Now, the sin nature produces in two areas. The first is what we call human good. It's just basic morality, uh, the idea of good. And even if people are immoral, they still have some sense of relative good. They may, they may reverse it completely. Some of you remember uh, years ago we showed the film The Peace Child about a group of a Stone, Age, a Stone Age tribe in Papua New Guinea. And when Don Richardson went there as a missionary, he was trying to find something in their culture that he could use to communicate the gospel and trying to understand them. And he lived among them for a couple of years, learning the language, learning their customs. And then he began to realize when he got to a point where he could tell the story about Jesus and his betrayal and crucifixion, arrest and crucifixion and death, that 
they responded by thinking that that Judas was the hero because Judas betrayed his friend. And in their culture, they had reversed good and bad to the degree that the highest and best thing that you could do was to trick and deceive someone so much that they you would deceive them and they would trust you and you it would end up you would end up taking their life as a result of that and so for them good was something that we would think of as evil lying and deception was the highest moral value in their culture was to lie and deceive to the point of costing someone their life so <clears throat> morality or the values that a, a people have or a culture has are, are the standard of human good. It's that which the culture defines as being good and profitable and helpful. Now, you also have those who specialize in religious morality like the Pharisees did. They're spiritually dead, they're sinners, they're dominated by sin, but they have this thick facade of being good, of being righteous. And Jesus, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, said that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. So he identifies it as a self-righteousness, and that's one form of morality. So the, the, the sin nature, which is how everybody's born, they're corrupt, they're fallen, they're dominated by their sin nature. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1, they walk walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. And that's their focus. And they produce morality. And it can't come out of out of a spiritual life because they're spiritually dead. It can't come from the Holy Spirit because they have no knowledge of the Holy Spirit. It is a relative good, a relative morality, but people think that somehow that's going to impress God. The other end of the spectrum... We produce those things that most people would agree are bad or evil or wrong, and that is what we identify as personal sins. It may be mental attitude sins where uh, we think of things, uh, we're angry, we're jealous, we think about or plot uh, vengeance, we're greedy, uh, all kinds of mental attitude sins. And some of those mental attitude sins bleed over to lust patterns. For example, as we're studying this evening, you have uh, you you have um, <clears throat> you have less related to um, materialism, but then you have the mental attitude sin of greed, and so you have other uh, other lust patterns that are also sins. So lust can be a sin, or lust can be just talking about the lust pattern itself. Now, <clears throat> the lust pattern drives us in one of two directions. So if it drives you towards asceticism, legalism, and epistemologically, and I'm not going to go into the details on that, rationalism, then that fits with, with, uh, with human good. Your trend is to be right. Your trend is to be moral. Your trend is to do things that are upright. And so you emphasize asceticism. Asceticism means that you think that giving up certain things is going to somehow make you holier just because you've given those things up. And you see this in various uh, various religions in its most extreme form. It's monasticism. You have forms of legalism. Now, we tend to think within our Christian bubble, we think of legalism in terms of what the Pharisees were doing. 
But you look out on, on our world today and think a lot about what is going on on the left, on the <clears throat> radical left end of the spectrum, and they have their own set of, of standards, and you have to uh, uh, adhere to those in a very legalistic fashion. And if you violate those, then they are going to blast you uh, all over social media and all over the press. So you just think about what happened last night. Uh, some of you may have watched the LSU football game when uh, they had their great victory over uh, over Clemson. And at the very beginning, President Trump and his wife, Yvonne, uh, um, what's her name, showed up, and they just, I mean, the crowd just went berserk. They just absolutely, absolutely loved it. And then later on, uh, while he's up in his booth, one of the um, um, current movie stars, uh, Vince, uh, what's his name? You remember? Did you? It's not, I want to say Vince Young, but it's not him. Hmm? Vaughn, Vince Vaughn. So he goes up there, and he sh- he's up there, and he gets introduced to President Trump and shakes his hand. And today he's just blasted by the liberal press. How could you be nice to President Trump? How can you shake his hand? How can you? See, he violated their legalism. And the left is self-righteous and legalistic in a way that, that mirrors that of the Pharisees. They're, they're just hateful. So you have this trend towards asceticism and legalism, uh, <clears throat> and it leads to a moral degeneracy. What's interesting is the culture we have today is immoral. It's an immoral degeneracy, and it's an immoral legalism, and it's a self, just like all legalism, it's self-destructive. So, but human good tends to have an affinity for asceticism and legalism. Then you have a trend in the opposite direction, which is licentiousness. And let me tell you, some people, our sin nature is is so complex that within 30 seconds we're trending towards asceticism and then we bounce to the other extreme of licentiousness in some way and then we bounce back. Licentiousness is the idea that we can get away with whatever we want to get away with. We we have no, no boundaries, no rules, no laws. We can do whatever we want. And this is emphasizes lasciviousness and what is called antinomianism, which just means against law. It rejects rules. I, it's pure moral relativism. I can do whatever I want to, and that comes out of a, a, an irrationality. There's no standards. There's no logic. I can just get away with whatever I want to. And that leads to an immoral degeneracy. But these lust patterns produce a number of different sins. And we need to think about that. We need to think about what the Bible says about the danger of giving in to our lust patterns. And the Bible says that we're not, as Christians, we're not to give in to those lust patterns, that we are to consider ourselves dead to sin. That means separated from sin. Now, that's hard to do because we have this sin nature in us and we're never going to be without sin. We're never going to be sinless. And there are going to be times as Christians that we commit sins that are shocking. They shock us. They shock people around us if they know about them because that little sin nature inside of us is so wicked and evil and it presents things to us that are so enticing 
that we think that is the way to make this situation work and to solve our problems. So that's our focal point. A couple of verses to begin with. First <clears throat> Peter 2.11. Peter writes, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, he's talking to them, literally they're part of the diaspora in the Jewish community. They are Jewish background believers. But there's also a spiritual sense here that we're only temporarily on this earth. This is not our our eternal home. And so in that sense, we're also sojourners and pilgrims. And he says, abstain from fleshly lusts. That's the sin nature, the lusts of the sin nature. We'll talk about these in just a minute. Uh, it, it's the Greek word epithumia, and it has the idea of desire in a good sense. Uh, Paul would write to his hearers, I desire to see you, and that would be the word epithumia. And then it also has the flip side. It expresses the idea of, of lust, of craving something that you, you, you're, you're making idol out of uh, in your mind that uh, you think that is what you have to have for life to really work, for you to really be happy, and you create this idol of whatever the object of your lust is. And it borders on the meaning uh, covetous. But covetous is actually a slightly different word, even though this shows that there's an overlap. In Colossians 3.5 we read, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. See, you're, the members is a term that relates to uh, using your body, using your life to serve your sin nature. And you're to put it to death. It's the same thing that Paul says over in uh, Romans chapter 6, consider yourselves dead to sin. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Uh, fornication. Now, fornication is when there is uh, uh, sexual intimacy between two people who are not married to each other. And uncleanness takes it a little bit further. It broadens the scope of that to any form of, of immorality. Uh, passion, which it has the idea, bleeds over into anger and unrestrained uh, lust and desire. And then you have the word evil desire, which is epithemia. And then covetousness, which is the word pleonexia, which it literally means greed. Greed. So greed is part of, the, of your lust pattern, but it's also a sin. So it drives people. They're greedy. They want more. And greed manifests itself in a lot of different ways. Greed we often associate with money, and we associate it with material possessions. But people can be greedy for food. People can be greedy for attention. People can be greedy for a lot of different things, and they have to have those things to make life work. So let's start breaking this down and come to understand just what the Bible teaches about lust. First point is what I've alluded to already. Lust is both a mental attitude sin, uh, such as greed or sexual lust or materialism, uh, all of these things. It's a mental attitude sin as well as a motivational drive within the sin nature. And uh, if we've been around very long, we have a pretty good idea of what the lust patterns in our own sin nature are. 
We may not like them, but we know they're there, and we don't want to really become too friendly with them because then we start accepting it as, as normal. So lust just is a mental attitude sin, and it's a motivational drive in the sin nature. So what moves us in our, in our lives, and it underlies so much. Often I think when we get to heaven and our sin nature has been uh, surgically removed from every part of our soul and every part of our being and our personality, I really wonder what we're going to be like because so much of our personality is shaped by our lust patterns. It's shaped by our sins. It's shaped by all this corruption. And when that's removed, uh, what are we going to be like? I mean, that's, that's the ultimate end of sanctification. So <clears throat> lust is both a mental attitude sin and a motivational drive within the sin nature. The second thing that we see is that lust is seen as this drive behind the war between the Holy Spirit and each believer. We look at Galatians 5.17, and it says that, that lust wars against the Spirit and Spirit against lust. So lust is that which drives us. Galatians 5.17 says, For the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. So it's the sin nature and it's that lust that is the the mover and shaker in this war in our spiritual life. So we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We attempt to walk by the Spirit. But there is this enemy within that is our sin nature that seeks to totally pervert everything. It's like having a spy uh, inside of us that is seeking to uh, completely sabotage everything that we're doing. That's what Paul relates to in Romans chapter 7. In Mark 4.19, this is in the parable of the soils, not the parable of the sower, but the parable of the soils. You have four different kinds of soils that represent the different ways in which the gospel of the kingdom is received. And in the third one, it's called the seed that is sown among the thorns. And about that, Jesus says, and the cares of this world, that is, the priorities and concerns and values of the cosmic system. And then he says the deceitfulness of riches, that's materialism lust and money lust, and the lust for other things entering in choke the word. So Galatians 5.17 tells us that, that the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. But here we have... Uh, this dynamic of how lust in our soul chokes out the word. It has, it's, it's, it's immaterial, but it has a material impact in our lives. And we'll see some more of that in just a minute. Third thing, there are a number of different kinds of lust. Now, I'm not going to try to give you a big exhaustive list. I just want to talk about a, a few of them. Approbation lust, power lust, materialism lust, money lust, sexual lust, food lust, alcohol and drug lust, and pleasure lust. That's just to name name a few. Those are common in our culture. Now let's talk about approbation lust a little bit. You see, we live in a world that has a culture that is dealing with something that's never we've never had to deal with before, at least to this degree. 
we are socially connected by the internet to so many people. And if you have a, a trend in your sin nature toward approbation lust, then this is the greatest thing in the world for you. Approbation lust is the desire for approval. It's the desire to be liked. It's the desire to be recognized. And when you feed that, it just, it, it, it explodes in your narcissism, your you're, where everything is all about you, and you have all of these young people who get on, and older people too, they get on. Now, there are some ways in which this may not apply to you uh, if you're on social media, but for so many people, they're going to make some statement, and they can't wait to find out how many people like it. And if they get uh, f- five likes Instead of 50 likes, well, then they're depressed all day. And this happens with young people a lot. They post certain things in social media, and they don't get a big response to it, then they're just devastated. And and life has no meaning because they're, <clears throat> they're not getting enough likes on their social media. And so approbation lust is all about getting this recognition for other people. And if I don't get the right recognition and the right, right response from people, then then I'm going to uh, cave in, into just uh, despondency and despair and depression, and life really has no meaning because meaning is uh, that everybody's going to look at me. Everybody is going to value me. It's all about me, and that just feeds that aspect of the arrogance in our sin nature. And we're familiar with how I've taught through the arrogance uh, complex that in arrogance, everything is all about me. And that's what the sin nature is. It's all about me. And when that gets blown way out of proportion, then we get into this whole narcissistic uh, syndrome, which dominates our culture. So social media and other things like that just feed this monster. And we can't let that happen. We've got to not feed the beast. We can't let ourselves, if that's our area of weakness, then you need to cut yourself off from those things that feed that and give you that outlet for recognition, that outlet for approval uh, from other people. Another one is materialism lust. We live, and everybody recognizes this, we live in a very materialistic culture. It's It's about the status symbols that you get. It's about the... Uh, way you dress and the labels that you have and what you can't afford for for many, many people. Now, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with having well-made clothes and affording things like that and having uh, various uh, uh, products that you've worked hard for and you've earned the money and you want to buy that level of quality and you have it, it makes your life better. And there's a, a positive way in which all of that works. But for so many people, those things, having those things, uh, using those things, being known for having those those uh, status symbols, that defines their life. That is what defines their purpose, their meaning. They've arrived. This is what what then defines them. And if you don't have Jesus Christ, if you don't have the Word of God in your soul, then that is all there is. What do you own? What do you have? How does that uh, define who you are. So that's that's materialism lust, the desire to have things, nice things, good things in and of themselves. There's nothing wrong with having them, but you, your sin nature can distort that into where that becomes basically an idol. 
You have to have these things. You need these things. Without them, uh, you're just you're just not defined. You just don't have meaning or purpose in life. And what that leads to is a warped value system. It leads to a distortion in our souls that comes on very slowly and gradually over the course of, of years. Then we have, and that's connected a lot to money lust and how much uh, how much we make. And then you have people who want to. Uh, show off how much money they have. And there's nothing wrong with having great things. There's nothing wrong with driving expensive cars. There's nothing wrong in and of themselves unless that is what you think is makes you important and, and significant. Now we come to, we'll talk a lot about sexual lust in a minute because that's the focus of these chapters. Uh, we talk about food lust. Most people talk about alcohol, but very few people talk about gluttony. Uh, one of the great illustrations in church history of that is one year Dwight Moody, who was uh, <clears throat> rather large, was conducting a series of crusades in England, and he spoke at uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon's church, and Charles Spurgeon was considered, still considered by some, the greatest preacher of the English language. And they would travel together around England, and one day they were uh, riding in a riding in the train, and Spurgeon, who loved a good cigar, reached into his pocket, pulled out his cigar, clipped off the end, lit it up, and uh, Moody wrinkled up his face and said, I wish you'd put that smelly thing away. And uh, uh, Spurgeon poked him in his fat stomach and said, I will when you get rid of that, pointing out that his if he's going to make an issue out of his smoking, he'd make an issue out of Moody's gluttony and being fat. So uh, it, it works both ways. There's so many people today who have food problems. It's related to lust, that somehow they think that lust is going to provide, I mean, that food is going to provide meaning and value, solve problems in their life and or create problems. You have those who have problems with the way they look and their image and they get involved with anorexia and bulimia and other other food issues. And you have other people who uh, just seem to, uh, when they eat, they just can't get enough to eat. It's all about food. Now, I love food. I'm, you all know me. I'm a, I'm a foodie. I love, I've always loved to cook and I always like to have good food. But you can't let that dictate everything in your uh, in your life. And I've known people who, when they sit down at a meal, you just can't imagine uh, that anybody could eat that much. Now, any of us can sit down and have a meal like that on occasion, but I've known some people who do that at every single meal. And in some cases, it's because of their background. Maybe they grew up very, very poor. Maybe they didn't have much food. Maybe they didn't have... Uh, good food, and that became in their mind something that if you had arrived, then you uh, had uh, good food, and you could eat whatever you wanted to eat and so now it gets distorted, and instead of food being something you simply enjoy and something that is um, that is fun and and good and that uh, takes care of your nourishment. It becomes something that you you have wrapped your meaning and value in life around so that if you don't have or can't display all of this, it's like displaying wealth, only you're displaying food. 
Uh, then you have alcohol and drug lust, and that works the same way with alcohol and drugs, and that's what people look to. It dulls the pain of life. Food can do that. People get depressed, and so what do they do? They eat. And, and so they're looking at food as the solution to their problem, or they look to alcohol as the solution to their problem, or they look to drugs, and all, all of these things. It's all motivated by the lust of the, their sin nature, that whatever it is they're, they're lusting for, that they're coveting, that they're desiring, they're basically saying, that is what makes life valuable for me. That is what gives me meaning and purpose, and it's a substitute for for God's solution to the problems uh, of their life. And the same thing with pleasure lust. Boy, do we live in a culture that is dominated by by pleasure lust and entertainment lust. I was having a conversation uh, with someone the other day talking about how how things had changed with kids just in the last 20 or 30 years. And they 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 were commenting that they remembered when they were a kid that they enjoyed going to school, but now... Uh, their kids are bored, and it, in five or ten minutes in a class, they're they're ready to do something because uh, what's happened is with all the entertainment, all the technology gadgets, with all the games and with all the videos and everything, there's this constant stimulation. And, and the result of that is that if you're not constantly being stimulated, it trains you not to be able to think, not to be able to just be quiet and to think with nothing going on uh, whatsoever. There has to be a constant source of stimulation, constant source of motivation. Have you noticed how movies have changed in the last 30 or 40 years? Very rarely do we see a film that focuses on character development, that slowly, gradually develops uh, the characters and reaches its its resolution and tells a good story, but we go to, go to so many films. It's the music that's so loud. It's the uh, the lights are flashing. There's always has to be a lot of action and noise, and it's that constant stimulation that you didn't see. You go back and you watch some of the classic films from the 40s or 30s. You you don't have that. You, you're thinking much more about about the character. There's more more depth to the, those stories. So we live for this stimulation. All of that feeds off of our lust pattern, and it, it is so destructive. When we get into the next category, which is sexual lust, Scripture has a lot to say about this. And some of this is significant for a background of what we're studying in Second Samuel 13. Second Samuel 13 is the story of a young man, Amnon, who just lets his sexual lust get out of control to the point that he rapes his half-sister. He is consumed with his desire uh, to have her sexually and to gratify that. And so it's a complete violation of the Mosaic law. And that is part of the background to understanding what's going on here. And so when you get into the uh, Mosaic law. Well, these passages don't relate to, relate to sexual immorality. They relate to what I was just talking about in terms of being a glutton and a drunkard. Deuteronomy twenty one twenty, uh, talking about a rebellious child as a, as a glutton or a drunkard. Proverbs twenty three twenty. Do not mix with wine bibbers. That wine bibber is an old term for a drunk. Uh, those who drink too much, not just somebody who has wine. You know, it's interesting. When I went through Dallas Seminary, there was a 
uh, a statement. It was an oddly worded statement in the student handbook that went something like this to the best of my memory, that we believe that uh, students at Dallas Seminary are the future spiritual leaders of the country, and therefore uh, we believe they should not uh, not partake of alcohol or tobacco. That statement did not come into the handbook for Dallas Seminary until the early 50s when John Walbert became the president. Before that, there was nothing like that under Dr. Chafer. Dr. Chafer wanted the seminary to be not to have any sense of legalism and that that the, the school would not have any any legalistic standards or false false standards. In fact, the story is told about J. Vernon McGee, who many of you have heard of, very popular uh, pastor, one of the uh, first graduates of Dallas Seminary back in the early 30s, and a well-known radio teacher. In fact, they still uh, uh, broadcast his radio Bible classes on uh, on Christian radio all over the country. But And he had a strange accent. He was from Waxahachie, Texas. And he had done his first year in seminary at a liberal Presbyterian seminary in Virginia. And he decided he didn't want to have anything more to do with that and with their legalism. So he had heard about this new seminary in Dallas, and so he wanted to check it out and make sure that they weren't legalistic. So he went and found the largest, most obnoxious cigar that he could find and lit it up and walked into one of the first building they had, Davidson Hall, where, the, where he would register, uh, puffing on this big cigar. Nobody said anything to him. But but some 20 years later under Walbert, he had this, uh, and, and Walbert never believed that Jesus turned the water into wine. That wine was not alcoholic. Well, you have to know something about Dr. Walbert. His mother was a temperance marcher in the uh, early part of the 20th century and one of, the, one of the moving forces behind prohibition. And so he was reared with all of this uh, legalism, this hostility to uh, to any alcohol and uh, Harold Honer, who was the head of the uh, uh, Greek department, used to. In, I, I heard this story from another, from a faculty member, that he would uh, he would make these these under his breath comments every now and there in faculty meetings, where he would say, "Jesus turned it into alcoholic wine." He would just, you know, it didn't have anything to do with conversation. He would just drop that on occasion because it would irritate Doctor Walvert. So. Um, but that's what a wine bibber is—an alcoholic, not someone who liked wine, or with gluttonous, eat, gluttonous eaters of meat. Proverbs twenty-three twenty-one: For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty. Why? They'll waste all their money on food and wine, and not have any responsible use of their financial resources. And drowsiness or laziness will clothe the man with rags. So those are the prohibitions towards uh, letting your your food lust, your lust for alcohol, uh, your lust for laziness, for not just giving in to all of your inclinations uh, are prohibited in Scripture. Then you start getting into the uh, commands related to sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee sexual immorality. It doesn't say avoid it. 
That's a very graphic term, to flee, like Joseph did when Potiphar's wife, he was a slave in the household, and she wanted to seduce him, and she started coming after him, and and she grabbed his coat, and he let it go, and he just ran out of the house and fled so that he would not be forced to deal with increasing, um, increasing temptation. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. There is a certain corruption that is enhanced because of sexual immorality, according to this passage. First Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So this is related to spiritual life. That's what sanctification uh, deals with, is living a life set apart to the service of God, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Now, both of these passages is talking about fornication. It's not talking about sex um, between people who are married, but not to each other, but it is talking about sexual immorality between those who aren't married to anyone or married to each each other, which is what dominates our culture today. Uh, the casualness of sex is promoted through television show after television show. And we think of this as normal today. In fact, recent surveys in Christian culture have indicated that that among the among younger Christians, and this is 50 and under, they have no problems with Christians living together before they ever get married. And that was never acceptable before. It's not acceptable biblically at all, but this is thought of as something that is normative, so it's okay. Exodus 20.14, also when you look at Deuteronomy 5.18, which rehearses the Ten Commandments, you have the same thing, same statement, thou shalt not commit adultery. Adultery is sexual relations between people who are married to uh, someone else. Matthew 5.28, Jesus says, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So sexual lust is a lust lust pattern. It's also a mental attitude, uh, mental attitude sin. Now we had a a president who very famously uh, admitted to having lust in his heart, and the media just made great fun of him. But then he got elected president, and the the liberal media had to fawn all over him because he was a liberal and he wouldn't be as evil as as Ronald Reagan was. And he was the worst president that this country's ever had, or almost maybe. Then you get into Leviticus. Leviticus gives uh, prohibitions against incest. Incest is between family members, but it, it, it broadens the definition of family. And there are many other verses in here. I'm just hitting a few high points, but there's more. But anybody who has any close kinship, even if it's a half-sister or half-brother, and that's the case with Amnon and Tamar, uh, then this is prohibited, even if it's with an uncle and a step-niece or something like that. So in Leviticus 18.6 we read, None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness, which was a euphemism for sexual relations. So that's a pretty broad statement, anybody who is near kinship. Now, prior to the giving of the Mosaic Law, there is no prohibition against 
uh, what we would call incestuous relations. Abraham is married to Sarah, who is his half-sister. You have Isaac marrying Rebekah, who is his uh, cousin. Why is that okay? In the creation of Adam and Eve, God created them with a full genetic makeup. In the uh, in, in their reproductive organs, they had uh, a, a rich, full, complete uh, genetic pool so that when they had children, those children could marry, and the complexity of the genetic makeup of both of them were so, so, so rich that they could get together and have children, and you wouldn't have problems with deformities. You wouldn't have problems with uh, mental defects or anything else because they there were there was so many different genetic combination possibilities but as you get past the flood and as you get a couple of thousand years into history then that genetic makeup those possibilities that each of us can have within our sexual organs gets less and less and so when you have two people who are too closely related then you're, if they have sexual relations, then there's going to be this uh, high incidence of a physical deformity and uh, mental, uh, mental problems and other things like that. So by the time you get to the Exodus event and the giving of the law in, in um, uh, 1446 B.C., now this is prohibited. If we were to take the time, which we're not, and you looked at ancient Near Eastern law up to this time, it was common in Egypt for the pharaoh to be married to his sister to keep the line going. But it wasn't until much later that you start getting into a lot of problems. For example, you go look at the uh, line of the um, of the Russian monarchs. Then by the time you get into the 18th and 19th century, there were just all kinds of problems because they're intermarrying within the family. And, uh, you know, like the old joke goes about people in Arkansas, I don't want to offend anybody in Arkansas, but the old hillbillies that uh, their, their family tree doesn't fork. And so that's what happens in these royal families uh, of, of Europe is their family trees didn't have too many forks. And so they start having lots, lots of genetic problems that, that developed. Luke 18, Leviticus 18.9, the nakedness of your sister, the daughter of your father, or the daughter of your mother. This would cover a half-sister. Whether born at home or elsewhere, their nakedness you shall not uncover. Uh, verse 11, the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter. This would be a, a stepsister. Uh, begotten by your father. So she's a half-sister. She's your sister. You shall not uncover uh, her nakedness. And then Leviticus 20.14, if a man marries a woman and her mother, so he's committing bigamy in the same family, uh, it's wickedness. They shall be burned with fire. It's a capital crime. Both he and they, that there may be no wickedness among you. And then Deuteronomy 27.20, Curses the one who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's bed. So this is an act of dishonor against the parent. All of these and more are prohibited as well as homosexuality. In Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. 
Uh, Leviticus 20:13. If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. It's a capital crime. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. Why? It is because once you allow permissiveness in any sin that is of this nature, that that is an attack on marriage and the family, the second and third divine institutions, then if you permit that to go on, then it leads to further and further destruction of, of marriage and the family, which is at the core of the stability of any national entity. Now, when we look at all of these different examples that we'll run into, uh, we realize that the Old Testament gives us lots of examples. This is the fourth point, that the Old Testament provides several graphic examples of the destructive consequences of giving in to our lust patterns. The Israelites going through the wilderness, what did they start lusting for? They had food lust. They wanted to go back to Egypt, to the leeks and the garlic of Egypt. They had those wonderful Egyptian chefs, and they wanted to go back to have that food and not be stuck out eating manna at every meal while they're going through through the wilderness. And so they complained, and God disciplined them in the wilderness. And in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 10, we read, Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So here it's dealing with the same issue. Uh, in in an earlier time than with Amnon and Tamar, and it's specifically in the context of 1 Corinthians 10, talking about the sins of the Exodus generation in the wilderness, but it has application or implication in terms of Tamar and Amnon, that all of these episodes that are revealed to us in the Old Testament are there as examples to us that we would not do the same thing. Fifth point, Lust leads to a complex of other sins, which may include mental attitude sins of anger. This is what happens with, with Amnon. So he starts off, and he just is, is burning with this sexual lust to, to take his half-sister Tamar. And then when he can't have her, he becomes angry, he becomes depressed, and it's, he starts triggering all of these other sins coming out of his sin nature, and then it can lead to physical acts or physical sins such as murder or physical sins of violence and rape, which is what happens in his case, or it can lead to, uh, to war. It is a destructive behavior in the family or the workplace to allow that lust to go unrestrained. When people are giving in to their lust, whether it's uh, anger, whether it's uh, sexual lust, whether it is lust related to uh, uh, other areas such as gluttony or, uh, or, or alcohol uh, drunkenness. And what happens is when you have people in a work environment and they are uh, allowed to carry out in their private lives uh, unrestrained sinfulness, then this eventually comes back into the workplace because it is, as we read in First Peter, it's a war against their soul. And what this shows us is that it tears down their intellectual abilities, it attacks and distorts their emotions, and it, it ultimately has damaging consequences for their volition. 
And so it leads to what we call mental illness, but it's not illness at all. An illness is something that is diagnosed on objective evidence that you can go into a laboratory, you can take somebody's blood, or you can look at at certain uh, uh, cells that are taken from a person, put it under the microscope and say, yes, indeed, they have this problem, and if we give them this antibiotic or this drug, then that's going to cure it. But mental illness is a misnomer because it's the consequence of people who give in to their sin nature and it wars against their soul. It wipes out all of those characteristics in their soul. It destroys their self-consciousness. It destroys their intellectual ability. It destroys their volition. And it destroys their conscience. And then you have a whole workplace of people who are like that who are giving in to all of their sins outside of the workplace, they're going to be doing that in the workplace as well. And it's just going to lead to a complete collapse of a, of a culture. Sixth point, since the fall, God gives man up to his lust. See, God gives people freedom. He gives people the freedom to succeed and the freedom to fail. God is not a tyrant. A tyrant comes in and says, you can't do this, you can't do that, you have to do this, you have to do that. That's legalism. God if the, God gives them the opportunity to uh, believe in him and to follow him and to obey him or not. If they don't, then he says, okay, fine. Uh, you just go the way you want to go, and I'm going to let you learn the hard way about what's going to happen. And this is seen in Romans one twenty four. It's the law of volitional responsibility. They choose against God, and God is going to give them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. And we just see examples of that in our families. We see examples of that in the world around us. We see it. It's glorified in entertainment. It's glorified and depicted in films. And it teaches people that this is normal for people to live this way and give in to their their lust patterns. Seventh point, the dynamics of lust patterns are described in two key passages. In Genesis 4-7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you not do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now, that's a pretty decent translation, but we miss the point of this when it says, if you don't do well, sin lies at the door. Now, the situation here is that you have two brothers, Cain and Abel. They have grown to maturity, and they have each brought offerings to the Lord. Cain brings offerings from what he's produced as a farmer, and Abel brings an offering that I believe was what God had instructed them to bring, and he brings a lamb, and God accepts his offering, and he rejects Cain's offering, and so what happens? Cain gives in to his anger, and he is depressed and discouraged, and so God says, if you do well, if you do what you're told to do, you'll be accepted, but if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. It's pictured, sin is pictured as a voracious beast that seeks to devour us. And so when we give in to sin, we're letting that voracious beast uh, control our lives and to uh, dictate 
what we're going to do. And so it destroys us just like a, a voracious beast does. The New American Standard translates it, if you do not do well since crouching at the door, its desire is contrary to you. It, it, sin wants to destroy you. It wants to rule and dominate and tyrannize you. In the NET Bible, in the footnotes, in their translation note, that's what the TN stands for up at the top, says that the Hebrew term translated crouching, revets, is an active participle. Sin is portrayed with animal imagery here as a beast crouching and ready to pounce. And so this is how that sin is portrayed. Your sin nature is like a lion seeking to gobble you up, to destroy you, to pounce on you, and to absolutely devour every aspect of your being. But the problem that we have is we don't think of our sin nature as this adult, voracious carnivore that seeks to gobble us up and destroy us. We think of our lust patterns as just some cute little kitten that we can control and that we can pet and we can play with and it's okay, and we rationalize and justify giving in to our sin nature here and there. But what happens is that as we feed the beast, as we feed the beast, the beast seeks to devour us. Now, there's a great illustration that I heard from uh, Dan Ingram, which is, uh, I think it's important for us to understand this. You've heard me speak before about a woman named Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. And basically, to summarize her life, she was a militant, activist, feminist lesbian who was had her Ph.D. in uh, English literature and was a tenured faculty member at Syracuse University. And there's nothing that she hated more than Christians. And she hated the religious right, and she hated Jerry Falwell, and she hated James Dobson, and she hated anybody who was a Christian, and, and it was palpable. And so she wanted to write a, an expose, uh, just a hate-filled piece uh, against the religious right and against Christianity. And she started off, and she had written some things, and so she sort of condensed it and published it as an editorial in the local paper. And she got lots of mail. She got mail from liberals who loved everything she said because they all hate Christianity. And then she got uh, hate mail from Christians who said all kinds of nasty things to her, which was not the right response. But she got one letter, and this guy didn't berate her. He didn't go after her. He talked about how well written the article was and various other things that he could compliment. And he said, but I'm just wondering where you got some of your information. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if he explained it this way. I've known a lot of Christians, but and I'm not sure where you got this information. I'd like to find out uh, just where you got it. And there was a tone to his letter that was not, it wasn't somebody's positive. It wasn't somebody who's attacking her. She didn't know what to do with it. And she threw it away, and then an hour or so later, she'd dig it back out of the garbage, and then she'd throw it away. Finally, she put it in the garbage can and went down the hall and dumped it down in the garbage chute that would go down for the uh, whoever to, to take the garbage out. And before she left that evening, she went down to the basement and dug it out. 
and she uh, responded to this guy who had written it. And it turned out he was the pastor of a church there in Syracuse. And he was so glad that she responded. She said, he said, you know, I'd really like to get to know you better and find out uh, what you're doing, where you got some of these ideas. And my wife and I would like to have you over for dinner. And it was months, you know, she's all defensive and he's going to try to make me a Christian and he's going to do this and he's going to do that. And he never men- they never mentioned the Bible. They never mentioned Jesus. They never talked about anything the whole, the whole dinner. And they found that they had various uh, writers in, in literature that they both liked and enjoyed. They would talk about them. And they, they, this couple built a relationship with them. And at the time, the pastor was probably in his 60s. And so she was in her late 30s or mid-30s, and they developed a relationship. And eventually, to make a long story short, after about a year and a half, she became a believer. But she, like a good literature professor, she read the Bible through about once every three or four weeks from Genesis to Revelation. And she realized that this whole book hung together as one consistent peace and that if Christianity were true all of this was true and if Christianity wasn't then this was a big big fraud but but she couldn't get past the unity of scripture this was well-written literature and she knew what well-written literature was and so she just couldn't get away from this of course we know that God the Holy Spirit was working to convict her but she understood that if this was true then then God could do anything and so she eventually trusted Christ as her Savior, and God changed her desires. And over the course of time, she came to understand that God, that, that a lot of the things that she did in her life were, were sins, and they were an affront to a holy and righteous God. But she had no idea how she could change, but she know, knew God could change her. She's got the most remarkable testimony of anybody of someone who truly believed in the sufficiency of Christ, that Christ could change her from a militant lesbian feminist into a pastor's wife who loved heterosexual intimacy and who is now, some 20 years later, has reared a number of uh, foster children. And she speaks at universities everywhere. She speaks to LGBTQ groups. And she is vilified and attacked. And she has the sweetest demeanor. And she never responds defensively. And she is just one of the best examples I've ever, ever seen of, of someone who trusts Christ to do everything. And really, truly believes. And she had a friend that was a male homosexual, and he just couldn't get there. He just couldn't really trust God to solve his problems. And so he eventually fell by the wayside, unfortunately, believer, but but just fell by the wayside. Well, a few years, a couple of years ago, she was speaking in Northern Virginia, and Dan Ingram went to uh, hear her. And afterward, he got a chance to go up and to talk to her. And when he did this, he, he asked her, he said, do you still have um, these desires, these homosexual desires, these lustful attractions? And, and if so, what do you do about it? And she said, well, that's just, uh, I'm going to put this in my words, that's the trend of my sin nature. Yes, I still have those desires at times, but you don't feed the beast. 
You just don't give into it at all, not even the least little bit. And so even though there are times when she still has those lusts and attractions, she doesn't give into it. Uh, they are no longer overpowering. She loves her husband. She loves their uh, relationship. She's attracted to him. She's not attracted to women. And the reality for all of us is this is true. Whatever your area of lust is, God's the same God who can solve her problem with her lust and your problem with your lust, whether it's anger or money or drug, whatever the other uh, situation uh, situation might be. The eighth point is that living on the basis of our lust drives, drives and enslaves and destroys us. Uh, our lust drives. Living on the basis of our lust drives enslaves and destroys us. That's what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. It's a trap. The lust patterns create a complete destruction of your soul capabilities. It distorts your ability to think. It attacks the intellectual processes because now you're believing the wrong thing. It leads to being completely separated and divorced from reality. You're living in a totally made-up world with totally made-up values, and because you're totally divorced from reality, you think everybody else in the world is is dangerous and and crazy. And this is what we're seeing in, in the world today with Trump derangement syndrome. And they attack Christians because Christians vote for Trump. You know, Trump is immoral. Trump has done many things that are wrong, but so have mo- uh, a lot of Christians. Everybody wants to focus on some uh, uh, external overt sin, but most of the people that do are so filled with pride and envy and arrogance that it, 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 it minim- it, it, it's nothing compared to... Our, our, it, 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 these other sins are nothing compared to their to their arrogance. I just got a couple more things to go through and we'll be, we'll be done. James 1.14 says, Each one is tempted or enti- when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So the temptation is a test. And when you fail the test, then you're drawn by your desires. That's your lust patterns. And you're enticed. Your lust pas- patterns bait a trap. That's the literal meaning of the word translated enticed is to bait a trap, or to catch something by bait. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So you go through this process before it's in, and the end result of sin is it brings forth death. It's, a, it's not spiritual death. It's not physical death. It is a death-like existence. It's living like a spiritually uh, dead person. And the solution is don't feed the beast. Don't give in to your sin nature. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 5.16, walk by means of the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But most Christians are walking around giving in to their lust all the time and with no sense of self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit, no sense of self-mastery. They just, they just give in because that's the path of least resistance and they have no faith in God that he is sufficient to solve uh, the problem. Colossians 3, 5 says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. God commands us to do that, and we can only do it if we're walking 
by the Spirit. And the only way to do that is we have to learn, and it doesn't happen overnight. We're always going to have this battle until the day we die because the sin nature is never minimized. The sin nature never goes away. And we may go from one less pattern and deal with that to another, but that's the process of sanctification and the spiritual life. We just have to learn not to feed the beast. Father, thank you for this time we've had to study your word, to be uh, impressed and encouraged by the examples of some believers that have learned to trust you and realize that you can uh, change our desires, you can change the way in which we respond and react to circumstances and situations, that too often we have various idols of the mind where we looked to those things that our lust patterns are attracted to and We assign to those things the things that only you can provide and that they will solve the problems in our life rather than walking by the Spirit and trusting in you. Father, challenge us with what we studied this evening, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.